Welcome to episode number 137, Helping Youth with Emotional Difficulties, Part 4. I am your host, Damon Soka. Now, two weeks ago, I discussed how best to help you struggling with emotional difficulties from the sense of body chemistry and physiological management. I noted then that I would discuss both trauma and relationships as two of the most influential difficulties facing our youth and how we can actually help our youth work through those emotional struggles. Now, I realized that trauma and relationships are probably actually two topics that need their own voice. And so, I will discuss trauma today and relationships will actually come next week. Before I jump directly into the subject of trauma, I want to talk about something very important to the reality of mental illness and, of course, trauma. I want to talk about the wiring of the brain. What do I mean by brain wiring? I mean the physiological, emotional response system of the body. Now, because of my illness, my mental illness, I've often said that my brain is just wired differently. I see things differently than most people. I respond very differently to emotional situations. I often see things that others don't. My mental illness has really rewired my brain. And to understand that, my brain does not function as others has actually helped me tremendously in the gospel. Why? Because when you better understand how your brain and emotional response systems respond to stresses, then you can tailor the gospel to your needs. For instance, if you have anxiety or depression, as I did at one time very severely, then many gospel activities are going to be very difficult for you. For instance, being called upon to give a prayer, or worse yet, a testimony, being asked to teach a lesson in Sunday school, or let's talk about serving a mission, or even doing regular church missionary work as a member, or even something as simple as ministering assignments. When you have an anxiety disorder, and or depression, or other mental illness, this church can be a very difficult place to live because of the social requirements. Almost every activity requires you to interact and perform socially to feel spiritual, to be happy, and very often do things that might be or are far beyond your emotional comfort zone. Now, it isn't bad to get a little out of the emotional comfort zone, but extending ourselves far beyond our capacities actually has serious consequences, especially to those who have a predisposition to mental illness. It will cause symptoms of mental illness to deepen and will not be productive spiritually, physically, or mentally. Running for periods of time significantly outside our emotional comfort zone will actually be counterproductive to living the gospel, even when those activities might seem beneficial on the surface. When we suffer with mental illness, our capacities are limited, and because of this, certain portions of the gospel will take us far more time to learn and to accomplish. Now, King Benjamin observed this when he talked about running no faster than you have the strength or capacity to run. It might take mountains of practice, effort, and time to accomplish just a small portion of what a normal functioning emotional system can accomplish. Personally, when I think of this, I've given thousands of presentations, from presentations at work to talks to testimonies, and I've taught likely thousands of classes and lessons. And yet, even with all of that work and preparation and practice, my anxiety can still get the best of me. 
I still struggle to the point at times I pray for help and relief from the symptoms. But that is exactly what a rewired brain is and does. Physiologically and emotionally, its wiring isn't normal. So the body reacts abnormally to certain external stimuli. And because of the wiring, it will take significantly more effort to accomplish tasks that trigger that anxiety or depressive episodes. Now, this is no one's fault. It's just part of the body chemistry, predisposition, and genetics. And of course, the weaknesses the Savior promised to give us. So what does that mean for someone trying to live the gospel? The first thing to help the youth understand who suffer with emotional difficulty is that their emotional management system works differently and is not wired the same as other individuals. This doesn't mean that they are dysfunctional. It means that they simply shouldn't compare themselves to others in the sense of how their body responds to environmental stress. While the youth may not know this, it is natural for us to learn by our comparing our lives to other lives. We watch, we listen, we attempt to understand how we should respond to environmental stresses by actually watching others respond to the same stresses. We attempt to understand how we should feel. That is actually how our brain works. It has from the time we emerged from the womb. Children parrot their siblings, their parents and peers, and we actually do the same parroting as adults. But for someone who is suffering with mental illness or emotional distress, the emotional management system does not work normally. So watching someone whose emotional brain is normal pass through life stresses and seeing their response is not likely to be helpful to someone who is suffering from emotional distress or mental illness. And worse yet, it may actually be detrimental to watch and parrot a normal functioning person. This is one of the main lessons that took me so long to understand. I personally will not be able to learn how to control my serious emotional difficulties by watching someone who does not have them. In fact, I am likely to fail miserably when I attempt to overcome my anxieties, depressions, and even mania in the same manner as those around me who don't suffer with mental illness. That failure will only compound my emotional problems. What youth need to understand who suffer is that they will need to approach gospel living differently than individuals who do not have the same emotional issues. This will be a revelation to them, as it was to me. Differently means accepting the emotional difficulty and working with it, not against it, and avoiding the comparisons that naturally come to the mind. Treating serious emotional difficulties is likely to be a combination of medication and small step training. A youth with emotional difficulties might be unable to emotionally muscle their way through a talk in a sacrament or teach a lesson. Now, in light of the difficulties, we would need to start smaller, such as reading a short scripture, giving a short spiritual thought before class with some help and guidance. The heart of this matter is not so much the exact nature of the small steps, but the emotional capacity of the individual. Once they understand that their brain is wired differently and that they need to approach gospel living differently, you can then help them work through their concerns, anxieties, and difficulties and provide for helping them to approach learning these larger skills 
through smaller ones. Individuals with mental illness and, of course, serious emotional distress need to adjust the gospel to their capacity. Otherwise, the experience of just living the simple, simple principles and public church interaction can be a mountain far too, climb, far too high to climb. I attempted to live the gospel as a normally functioning individual, and for a time, it was actually a disaster for me. I don't remember anything about my mission, and I certainly don't remember much about my teenage years or even my early, early adulthood. The anxiety and depression were simply too much for what I was attempting to accomplish, and certainly I needed to take smaller steps. And I will admit that I pushed my body into a trauma zone far too regularly because of it. Now, we're going to talk about this trauma zone, and interestingly enough, one of the signs of that trauma can and often is memory loss. If I had understood so long ago that my brain was wired differently, and that because of my emotional difficulties, I would need to approach live, living the gospel differently, I think that my overall perspective of the gospel and living its principles would have been actually far easier for me. If we can help the youth to avoid that guilt trip that comes with living the gospel differently, then we can go a long ways to helping them stay in the gospel and become converted. But it will take a different and a new perspective. That perspective means that if I can only attend sacrament meeting and sit in the back, talk to no one, and then leave right after because of my mental illness symptoms, then I am walking the covenant path the same as the person who attends all their meetings, participates in every class, gets their ministering done, and accomplishes a great deal more in comparison to my efforts. The one thing we can do is to help these youth is to accept what they can do as good enough, and then help them to work on small increases and to celebrate and honor those successes they have, not what they are not doing. The Lord will truly judge us on our capacity and what we did with what we had, not judge us on some random standard that was beyond what we could do. Now, two clarifications are actually important about this idea of small steps. One, this doesn't mean that someone can avoid living the word of wisdom or the law of chastity or any of the other commandments that protect us. And two, this doesn't mean that someone doesn't need to work towards worthy goals and small steps. I know I've said this before, but I'm going to say it again. The Lord doesn't want us running faster than we have strength or capacity, but he does expect us to run and put forth effort. But my effort may look very different from someone who possesses a more normal emotional brain and capacity. One of the keys to helping with trauma mental illness and emotional difficulties is to help youth understand how best to live the gospel to their individual emotional capacity. Now, talking about the trauma zone, I want to discuss trauma based on this idea that the emotional brain is actually wired differently when we experience trauma and compounded by mental illness. Certainly the events of these last few weeks in Texas, New York, Ukraine, and so many other places remind us that trauma and extreme moments of, of an unpredictable nature are rarely far from us. They can paralyze us and make us feel as though we have no covert from the storm. The trauma in Texas, in the Texas elementary school shooting, 
for all those surrounding it, and even those watching it, represents what most of us think when we talk about trauma. We often look at trauma, traumatic experiences as a moment in time where extreme events invade our private space and we are forced to confront and deal with the actions of others, often so horrific that it changes the nature of how we perceive our own future. Yes, these moments are traumatic, and they do represent events that will change our emotional lives in how we perceive living in really all its forms. But to limit trauma to events that require death, emergency vehicles, and police is to view trauma from a very, very limited perspective. Trauma lives on an individual continuum in our emotional lives, depending on who we are, where we are from, our genetics, the society around us, what we've been taught, trauma is a very individual experience. What might be very traumatic for one person may only be a meteor in the sky for another. Notable, but really uneventful. Where someone might be emotionally paralyzed by simply watching a portion of the news, another might actually experience the same event live and in person and not have the same difficulty. It's also important to know that trauma can also be latent in its effects. We can experience abuse and accident, living in a high-stress environment, living in severe poverty, and so many other what we might call common mortal experiences that at the time we might not have considered them traumatic, but they were and that they, can, they do live deep within our souls. And they can rise to the surface when triggered or at times when we least expect it. Trauma does not have to be one large event, but can be an escalating series of events or even subtle negativity over a long period of time. We do not have to be involved in a shooting, live in a war, have abusive parents, find out our partner or spouse isn't who we initially thought they were, or get into an accident. We can be bullied, called names because our body doesn't fit in, laughed at because we aren't of the dominant race or religion, picked on, looked down upon, obscured because we don't fit the popular opinion, domineered, find out that we have an incur incurable illness, and truly almost any seriously negative experience where we feel cornered and without relief. Trauma can also come from mental illness that has come out of our genetics. Yes, mental illness can be a source of trauma and symptoms of trauma. Most individuals who experience a severe mental illness for a length of time will find the experience traumatic and difficult. Now, trauma is somewhat of a strange event for the body, and it can produce a host of symptoms that we don't often associate with trauma. Certainly, we might associate symptoms of depression, anxiety, fear, restlessness, a racing mind, and maybe even some emotional outbursts and other negative emotional states as symptoms of trauma that we understand, but so can things like hypersexuality, mania, memory loss, emotional memory loss, inability to feel pain, too much physical pain, stomach and digestive issues, eating disorders, emotional disorders, and so much more. The outward signs of trauma and the event itself might be actually difficult to link together. That is why counselors and other therapists, or brain trainers as I call them, so often probe for trauma by having us talk through the events in our lives. Burying traumatic events is actually quite common for individuals. One, because traumatic events are unpleasant in almost every way possible. And two, 
we aren't often equipped to work through the healing process at the time of the event. However, these events, if they are sufficiently traumatic, are likely to rise to the surface if we have certain predispositions to mental illness. For instance, I have spoken regularly about my severe bipolar disorder with a serious anxiety complication. Now, my emotional swings were so great at times and the emotional pain so severe that my emotional memory and my physical memory cannot now recall most of my life up until my mid-30s. I retain a few facts, figures, and perhaps some fuzzy pictures in my mind, but none of the facts, figures, or pictures come with any emotion. My mind and emotional memory blocks out that emotion. Now, my mental illness caused some fairly serious emotional trauma, and from that, I have memory loss. Interestingly enough, I tend to avoid talking about my life. One, because I don't really have a good memory of it, and two, I believe that it is a coping mechanism because my mind and emotional memory do not desire to relive the moments. Now, I tell you this is only an example. When we are working with youth, dealing or working through trauma, there are some concrete things we can actually do to help. The first is really to listen without judgment or advice. When there is trauma, youth need to be able to talk about it in their own way and in a safe place. A safe place means that whomever is listening is doing so with the intent to listen and to keep the information confidential, sharing it with only individuals with whom the youth has given permission. If they believe that you are going to share their concerns without their consent, then you do not have a safe environment. The next thing a safe environment requires is actually true charitable love. Youth need to feel that security and love from you. They need to feel as though you really care about them and their problems and that you are not there to help and that you are there to help, not just just to give advice or platitudes. The final piece of that safe environment is really truly listening without judgment or advice. Now, that's the difficult part of the safe environment. Our brains naturally jump to conclusions judgment, and advice. This is how we are wired as human beings, and it is no truer than when it involves someone we love or care about. We should ask questions that allow them to talk and then follow up questions to what they are telling us. In our questions, we are not probing or guiding the youth to something specific, although our brains will try to do that. What we want for them is to come to the understanding themselves of the central issue or issues in their lives. Now, of course, most of us are not trained to do this. And so leaving this portion to a counselor is generally advisable. However, helping them to see a counselor and discussing what you are seeing with their parents and other individuals will not be the end to the aid that you provide. Too many times, leaders, parents, peers want to send the youth to the family services magic box and then go on with their lives saying well we've done our part what they don't see is that the therapist or the counselor is only a part of the healing process and those youth need support love and a listening ear for some time during the treatment process hopefully the youth will be open enough to share what they are sharing with the therapist and the leader and parent and perhaps a friend can remain involved in the support and care along with the therapist. 
Sometimes the trauma can actually occur, though, from the actions of another person. And this is important. And because we love this innocent victim, we can tend to vilify the person whose actions were wrong. While it might feel right and seem right to fight for the victim through the punishment of the perpetrator, the pursuit of justice can seriously overshadow the healing of the victim and actually cause greater damage to the victim. The punishment of the offender will not provide healing to the innocent. Yes, it can perhaps reduce fears that the trauma will occur again, but healing will never come by the punishment of the offender. It can become a serious problem when the pain of the victim is redirected to fuel hatred or evil feelings for the accused, because this does not heal pain, but augment it and keep it alive. What we desire is healing, and healing from the actions of another requires the atonement of Jesus Christ. I've discussed this at length in a previous podcast, but it bears repeating often because our current society has really beaten the theory of healing by punishment of the perpetrator into our minds. Healing comes through the atonement of Jesus Christ and through treatment methods combined with the powers of the atonement, not through the justice system. One of the best things we can do to help the youth with traumatic events is to help them to turn to the Savior for relief, help them to understand how and what to expect. If the traumatic event deals with the actions of another person, and they often do, we certainly need to provide for protection to avoid repetition, but we do not desire that the victim end up hating the perpetrator. As a wise movie character once said, hate leads to suffering. We should help them to begin the process of forgiveness rather than seek for healing in punishment of another because part truly part of the healing process will be the forgiveness of the perpetrator. Yes, that is counterintuitive to what our society tells us and sometimes even the way we feel, but that is the truth and that is why the Savior gave the command to forgive everyone and to leave justice in his hands. If we desire to help our youth heal, and ourselves, we cannot harbor ill feelings for another person. Now that can be very difficult, now that can be a very difficult statement when the feelings of the traumatic event are still raw and deep, and that damage was severe. And so what we can also help the youth to understand is that it is a process. It will take time, effort, and the Savior, and the Savior's help to eventually forgive someone. The eventually is very important. One of the more helpful things we can do as parents, leaders, and friends is to support the eventually clause of healing. Everyone can heal and will heal with time and effort, but that amount of time and effort can vary dramatically. I have personally had had deep-seated traumatic feelings erased almost the moment I have asked the Lord, and others have lingered for many years healing over time, as it were. The youth need to know that it is okay when feelings flood to the surface without reason. They need to know that appropriate expression of feelings is actually a very good thing. Tears are important to the healing process. We need to feel and express those feelings as part of the healing process 
and we can help the youth find meaningful and appropriate ways to express their feelings. Youth, the youth today are resilient and they will respond as we help them to discover how to heal. That is one of our main purposes. One of the reasons that the Lord actually allows for trauma is that he can heal it and in so doing build a deep and abiding relationship with the person. May the Lord bless you in your personal efforts to help youth work through emotional trauma and may you in so doing heal yourself. Until next week, do your part so that the Lord can do his.